So I want to share a true story. A new friend of mine lives in West Virginia and uh, he's an artist, a really skilled carpenter. Really, really good. And uh, Joe's been in business for over 35 years and um, he's actually making some cabinets for Jonathan and myself and it's not a small project and he's been very generous about it and otherwise we wouldn't have been able to afford it. So last week he went to this folk festival to sell some of his wares in, I think, Pennsylvania or something and got a call in the middle of the night that his workshop had burned to the ground. Now, this is 30-some years of, if you know about carpentry, you build something and then you take the pattern and, and you keep refining it and building off all of his patterns, all of his tools, everything he was making, including what he was making for us, completely gone. So um, we talked yesterday and he had just, just gone back home and just seen this burned to the ground site and the twisted metal of the cabinets but with nothing left, just ashes, you know. So I asked him how it was and he said, you know, I could see the view the way it was when I discovered the spot 30 years ago when I first discovered decided to build the workshop there. And so we kept talking and he was in tears about the loss but he was also describing how it was the same land, he could see the view that he hadn't seen for so long. And then he quoted Basho, one that I I knew and it was so amazing to hear him say it. My barn having burned to the ground, I can now see the moon. So this is true. I mean, this is someone that, who knows how he'll rebuild, but his, his life has been, you know, he got really creamed. And that's not the way he's experiencing it. And yet he's grieving, he's getting the realness and he's grieving. But something in him is remembering something very powerful. And as we keep exploring here, there's huge, huge suffering when we have to have life be a certain way. You know, when our bodies have to be functioning a certain way or when our relationships have to be going a certain way or when our children have to be having certain life experiences. Um, That everything is out of our control and changes and passes and dies and if our well-being is hitched to things being a certain way, we suffer. So there's a tremendous freedom when we can deeply value what is here and love it and hold it lightly. It's as uh, Suzuki Roshi, one of the great Zen teachers put it, he said, renunciation does not consist in giving up the things of this world but in accepting that they go away. Renunciation does not consist in giving up the things of this world. Because we don't have to do this act of, okay, I'm letting go, I'm letting go. It's this deep wisdom of just letting life do what it does. It comes, it goes. But we know it's not easy. Um, You know, I talked last week about how much I struggled when my knees wouldn't work for me right and how it wasn't like um, I didn't... I didn't uh, so quickly go, okay, knees come, knees go, you know, I didn't do that. <laughs> you know? And um, we know what it's like when our child's in trouble or our job's at risk or um, whatever it is. So I was remembering after this, after Joe was, after talking to Joe, I remember writing, uh, when I was writing Radical Acceptance, and I was in the middle of one of my chapters and I had spent days and days poring over one section in that chapter. And then, for whatever reason, computer glitch, I lost it all. Like, I totally lost it all. And I went um, completely nuts. I mean, I, you know, I, w- I was berserk. And then I started saying, Tara, what's the name of your book? You know? <laughs> I mean, come on. I mean... Anyway, so... I dug this up, somebody sent me this about 10 years ago, but I think these are great. These are um, haikus, some of you might have seen these, that are um, about computers. A file that big, it might be very useful, 
but now it's gone. (laughs) A crash reduces your expensive computer to a simple stone. Three things are certain, death, taxes, and lost data. Guess which has occurred. (laughs) You step in the stream, but the water has moved on. This page is not here. (laughs) I'll just do one more. First snow, then silence. This thousand-dollar screen dies so beautifully. (laughs) So the inquiry really is, what is it that allows us to accept this life as it is? Really to have that inner freedom, especially when when it's not going our way. And really the, the whole dharma, and this is the Buddha dharma, but it's really all the spiritual traditions, have a, a similar understanding that our freedom comes when, regardless of what's happening, when we can remember in a deep way the awareness, that, that sacred awareness, that presence, that heart that's timeless. It's when we can remember what we are, loving presence. It's, that's the moon, you know, that Basho was talking about. So the barn burns down, these bodies go, relationships come and go, things happen and don't happen our way. But in some way there's a view, a remembering of the, really the depth of what we are. That it's the divine, that we remember the divine. So I could sense that with, with Joe that he didn't contract into this self that was the victim of a a tragic loss. He didn't, his identity, he didn't lose sight of a deeper identity. It's so easy when stuff goes wrong to lock into, I'm the victim, I'm oppressed, it's my fault, it's your fault. And so the remembering means to feel the losses, be really honest with our humanity, but have that remembering of something deeper. And in a way, this is the movement of all spiritual evolution. If I had to describe it, it's that awareness is trying to realize itself through form, through the evolution of being. Awareness wants to realize itself through form. And so that all forms are an expression of awareness. And as we come to realize, oh, what I am is this awareness there's still this unique temporary expression of body-mind, but we have our deep knowledge in the essence of what we are. And the truth is, we can't fully manifest our potential. In other words, you can't fully manifest your creativity, your love, your wisdom, unless there's that remembering of who you are beyond the particulars. So one way to think of it is that Siddhartha, the man Siddhartha, needed to realize Buddha nature for this awareness to manifest through Siddhartha as a teacher, as a healer, as a wise being. And that Jesus needed to recognize Christ's nature to become fully who he was as Jesus on earth. And that each one of us, this is what spiritual life is, is that we we move through our day and stuff happens and in some way there's this gradual remembering. Everything comes and goes and there is this sacred presence, what we are, that we can take refuge in. And the more we remember, the more our words and our actions communicate that. And it's contagious. Because when you remember what you are beyond this changing form, when you remember that awake space of presence, it's almost like it reminds other people that that's what they are. So I want to explore this a bit more tonight, how when we're facing changes and wants and fears and so on, this remembering is possible. And our pathway really is in this training and presence that we do here. That the pathway really is, okay, can we pause and deepen presence and notice, okay, what's actually happening? Where is there holding on? Where is there pushing away? And the challenge is that when the barn burns down, whatever it is for you, you know, whatever the 
the, mo- the experience going on in your life that's most challenging right now. It might be something to do with your body. It might be some difficulty in a relationship or at work. When that stuff happens, we actually go into a trance and rather than be present, we do the exact opposite. We go into this reactivity that cuts us off from the remembering. So what happens is, when stuff happens, it's difficult, we actually contract and our sense of identity gets narrowed. The who we are becomes very small-minded, our sense of ourselves becomes very separate. We live, in, we live in a kind of a trance that really is um, tight. And I've described... Um, it's kind of a false self. I've described it as a spacesuit that we take on to get through life that we get caught in. And I like the description in Greek theater of the, the persona. You know, what persona means is to sing through. And in Greek theater, they would wear these masks and they'd, to sing through them. And the mask is like the false self going through the different dramas and traumas, the self that wants things to be this way or is jealous about that or possessive or grieving, whatever it is. So in Greek theater, they'd put on these masks and the who they were would kind of sing through the mask. And then at night you go to bed, you put down your mask and you back to who you really are. But for us, we get identified with the mask and we forget how to put it down. So for most of us, if there's suffering, it's because we've developed this mass, this way that we react and deal with and navigate and control, and that's become our sense of identity, this false self, this mask. And so when the barn burns down, we become the mask of the tragic victim. Or when somebody doesn't act appreciative, we become the rejected victim. In other words, we can't put down the mask and remember who's looking through the mask? Who's peering through? It's like right now, who's even listening to these words? So in the wisdom traditions, it's taught that consciousness is peering through, that there's this awareness right deep in each of us that's awake and listening and feeling and looking. And that we get into this reactivity and forget and think we're that small self. But if we can learn to recognize that that's going on, we can come back home again. So what I'd like to do is kind of examine the mask a little. Because if you can tonight leave with a little bit more of a sense of, oh, that's that selfing, that contracting, being the mask, then you can sense again who's really looking through it. A short story. Some of you might remember. A while back, an old, tired-looking dog wandered into the yard. I could tell from his collar, though no tags, and well-fed belly, and the fact he was clean that he had a home. He followed me into the house down the hall and fell asleep on the couch. My dogs didn't seem to mind and he seemed like a good dog and I was okay with him so I let him nap. An hour later he went to the door and I let him out. The next day he was back, resumed his position on the couch and slept for an hour. This continued for several weeks. Curious, I pinned a note to his collar and I wrote, every afternoon your dog comes to my house for a nap. I don't mind but I want to make sure it's okay with you. The next day he arrived with a different note pinned to his collar. He lives in a home with three children. He's trying to catch up on his sleep. (laughs) May I come tomorrow? (laughs) So there's an understanding that, you know, our, our freedom comes from really... We take the roles on, and many of the roles that we call mask roles... It's fine, they're useful, they're functional. But to know that we can put them down, that we can rest, really important. So one of the main features of the mask, I'm going to give you some key features and have you kind of do some contemplation on, okay, so where am I kind of identifying with a mask that's really interfering with my life? So one of the main ones is the doing mask. That for most of us in this culture there is very big identification with a sense of doing. 
we are any, at any moment, if you stop, there's a sense of, well, who I am is the one that's doing this, that's causing this to happen, that needs to do this. So that's kind of a main feature of the selfing mask, this doing. And, and we wonder why we get tired, and it's we're, we're identified with doing. It's really hard internally to rest. I had a friend that went to a retreat last month, a member of this sangha, this community, and the main instruction at the retreat was absolutely relax, don't even try to do a meditation, just see what happens if your intention is to keep on relaxing. She said it was the most difficult set of instructions she had ever encountered because there was a sense of, I should be doing more, that's so deep in our nervous system that it's not safe or okay to relax, that the who we are is jeopardized if we relax, that our worth and our okayness is like contained in some purposeful activity. So the doing. And then the next kind of part of the selfing mask is the roles. We each have a handful of roles that it's who we think we are a lot of the time. And for some it might be the parent role. And of course that can be a rich and wonderful role as long as we get that we really don't own our children or possess them or they're not a reflection on us. But usually our roles are contracted by wanting and fearing. So they're not just roles, they're who I am as the parent and the offended parent when the child doesn't act duly respectful, the parent that digs in her heels when we're wanting to control our child to be, have them be different so they'll be happy, you know. Florida Scott Maxwell said, no matter how old a mother is, she watches her middle-aged children for signs of improvement. <laughs> I thought that was great. Then we have our role in our, in our work world and, either, and we might be an employee and have this very deep sense of the hierarchy and of in some way some other person above us in power and judging us. Or we might be the boss or own our own business and this role of the one that's got to make things work or things are going to crash. Or you might have the role of a meditator and with that some sense of being too lax, not really disciplined. Or it may be more spiritual than other people you meet. Or I'm a liberal, or I'm a runner. You know, we have these roles. And they can be just functional or they can be contracting. Now, when we get really identified some of the roles, clearly we keep telling ourselves, keep us very, very trapped in painful experience. For instance, I'm going to read you a short story. We believe many things to be fixed about ourselves that are simply the repetition of habit of mind. Okay? This is, this is really an, a, a story of how we get caught in our masks because we keep saying, well, that's what I am. I'm just that kind of person. When one older man, a lifetime smoker, was hospitalized with emphysema after a series of small strokes, his daughter urged him, as she often had done, to give up smoking. He refused and asked her to buy him some more cigarettes. He told her, I'm a smoker this life, and that's how it is. But several days later he had another small stroke, apparently in one of the memory areas of the brain. Then, without a concern, he stopped smoking for good. Period. But this was not because he decided to. He woke up one morning and forgot he was a smoker. To the extent that we are caught by our roles and identified, we are unable to put them down, we will suffer. So many times I've run into people that say, well, that's just the kind of person I am. And we keep telling ourselves that. And what if we didn't, you know? The most basic feature of this selfing mask is a sense of dividedness. I'm in here and the world is out there. So if you're looking for the real flag of being identified with a mask in any moment, it's self here, world out there. And with that, there's a subtle sense of fear. That the primal mood of the separate self, of identifying with the selfing mask, is fear. 
you might not feel it as outright terror. It might be just a restlessness or an anxiety or not feeling completely comfortable. But if there's any sense of self here and you're all out there, with that dividedness there's a sense of kind of existential tension. And sometimes when, there's, when we're under a lot of stress, that tension grows and so the selfing mask really becomes strong and, and it, it's just filled with manipulating and controlling. And we can sense that. When we're stressed we can sense how the, the selfing mask becomes, I'm the controller, I have to get things to work out. This is called the rope. There were eleven people hanging onto a rope suspended from a helicopter. Ten were men and one was a woman. They all decided that one person should get off because if someone didn't, the rope would break and everyone would die. So the negotiation began. But no one could decide who should go. Finally, the woman gave a really touching speech saying how she would give up her life to save others because women were used to sacrificing and giving up things for husbands and children, not receiving anything in return. And when she finished speaking, all the men started clapping. So let me summarize on, this, um, on these personas or these false selves and that is that most people, unless there's a true freedom from suffering, a real living and enlightened presence, most of us have built some sense of false self, some persona that's familiar and it's got different flavors. We might have a handful of masks that are our most common masks. But most of us have developed that in order to try to get what we want and avoid things that are difficult happening. The more wounded we've been, the more rigid the mask and the more we're identified with it. It's just kind of a cause-effect. So there's a certain amount of suffering in that that each of us, if we start investigating, can say, oh yeah, this is my victim mask or this is my listening to a cell phone mask or this is is my controlling mask. And that um, the personas are not harmful unless we don't know how to put them down. The reason we come here and gather together is to learn how to see through them and put them down so that we can really inhabit that sacred presence, that unconditional loving where we can love without holding back because there's not some role or mask that's saying I shouldn't be that way. It's not safe. If we can get the knack of seeing the selfing masks and and going, okay, and sensing who's really peering through, then as stuff happens, rather than being in a kind of spiral of reactivity, getting more controlling, more tight, there's actually, as, as Joe experienced, my friend, there's a sense of being able to see the moon to take refuge in what's right here and timeless and be okay. So let me invite you to reflect again. Let me just, if you will, close your eyes. This is going to be a bit of a, just a reflection on what, what are the masks that I am identified with. And some of them will feel very benign and some of them will feel charged and you'll just sense that for yourself. Okay? And as in any reflection, I'd like to invite you to first sense just the process of arriving. You might mentally whisper, here. And then just listen and feel yourself right here. So without judging, just to maybe sense into first some of the key roles you play in your life. Again, it might be parent, son or daughter, employee, helper, the patient. And maybe sense when you're stressed how this role becomes a kind of identity, a a constricting mask.
could be the role of brother or sister, it could be the role of the president of something, it could be the role of the fixer, I had to get a little more tuned into the mask, you might sense something that you really don't want others to know about you. Sense something you don't want others to know about you. And then sense how you've created some sort of a mask to hide that. What is it that you present that is to cover that over? This is a subtler level of masks. Sense something that you really want others to see. What is it you really want others to see about you? And notice how a mask acts to present that to others. Again, it's not, there's nothing evil or wrong, it's just the ways that you present to get approval, to win favor, that if you can notice it and not be identified, there's more freedom. Sense something that's really challenging in your life right now, that that you're struggling with. that brings up fear, hurt, anger. So you can sense the mask, the selfing mask that emerges in this situation, the tightness, the sense of injury, the stories, What's your sense of yourself when you're caught in this? We're going to return to the mask of when we're caught in difficulty, but for now to know that if you can begin to sense, okay, so when really in a stressed, challenging place, this is what coagulates, this is the selfing that coagulates, the reactivity, the beliefs, the feelings, and that there's in you an awareness that's aware of that, that's bigger than that that's watching right now, that's mindful. The beginning of freedom is to notice the mask and realize that who you are is bigger. You're the awareness that's noticing. Now we're going to explore that further, so when you'd like to open your eyes. So this, this is really, if you had to say, the essence of spiritual development. It's to recognize the mask, this cluster of reactivity that plays through our life. And sometimes it's really blatant, like when we're in really challenging situations, it gets really fired up. But even when we're not, there's still a subtle mask of, oh, I'm the meditator in class listening, or I'm being a good student, or it's the subtle mask of, oh, I'm the one driving and doing errands. There's still a subtle contraction where we're not remembering the fullness of what we are. We're in a role. So spiritual practice is really about recognizing the selfing, these different contractions, these masks, and in the midst of it, remembering the timeless presence that's here. Over and over until that 
becomes more familiar than any of the roles or masks that we might be wearing. So I'll give you an example. Because the big inquiry is when we're stuck, how do we come back to recognizing that? And there are two dimensions that we pay attention to when we're stuck to come back home to who's here. I consider them two dimensions of what is. And the first dimension is when we sense ourselves stuck, we begin to feel in our body the experience of that. If we can get out of our stories about what's happening and feel in the body the what is, the clutch in the chest, the sinking feeling, the feeling of hurt in the heart. If we can begin to be present with that, we have a gateway back to that timeless presence. If we can begin to sense, oh, okay, so this is the role of the victim, and then feel what that's like, we begin to come home. So I'll give you an example, which is... um, which is last year, one of the women that was coming to retreats and I met with several times, was trying to decide whether to leave her partner. And she felt like that they'd been together for a couple of years and he still had not committed to living together and getting married. And she felt like she was getting older, you know, in her early 30s. and, And her basic sense was that if he's not willing to commit, then I don't matter enough. And her ongoing kind of self-talk was, I'm not special, he doesn't really care enough, I'm not that important to him, he's not that interested in me. And so that was her inquiry, should I, should I leave? Because he's not making the commitments that would let me know that I really matter. And in terms of mask, if you had to say that, she, she was in the role of the victim, um, and her behavior would get, she'd get demanding and then she'd get distant, she was easily hurt. But deep down, she hated herself for being in that role. So she had the mask of the one that wasn't being loved enough, that wasn't special enough, but deep down couldn't stand herself. Okay. So as we practice, just the way we've done so many times here, I said, okay, so there's all these stories. What's it like right now? What are you feeling in your body? And she sensed herself feeling really hurt and really angry. And I asked her how familiar this was. And she said, you know, all my life I felt, because she was a middle child and she didn't get get the kind of attention she wanted, she says, all my life I felt like I wasn't special or important. Okay, so this was a life pattern. And then that helped her get more in touch in a very immediate sense with not only did others not think I was special, I just don't feel like I'm special, I'm not important. I'm not worth paying attention to. So she got right to the root of that self-aversion, feeling it in her body. So her practice was, because it was really striking to go from, he doesn't think I'm special and important, to, oh, I don't feel like I'm special and important. So here's what her practice became, that every time she became aware of that mask, that, that false self of, I'm the hurt victim, he doesn't think I'm important, and all the feelings of that, that was her flag to deepen presence, to actually consider what was going on inside her as important. So that was her practice. Every time the mass would come up, it was like, oh, okay, be in my body, feel what's here. And what she got in touch with was a grief that she felt was a wordless grief, like just a loss through her life, a, a loneliness and a loss. And the more she could feel that grief, the more she touched into a sense of real compassion. It was almost like rather than being the self that wasn't important, she became that awareness that was compassionate. This is the shift in identity that is the path of liberation. If you can move through your day tomorrow, the next day, Sense yourself caught up in one of the persona roles or masks, okay? Sense that caught upness and pay attention to what's going on inside. You'll rediscover the presence that's bigger than the mask. You'll see the moon again. That's the path of freedom. For her, I shared with her something I've, I've shared in here. Carl Jung wrote, 
nothing has a stronger influence psychologically on their environment and especially on their children than the unlived life of the parents than the unlived life of the parents that if we're not present with what's within us it's unlived life if we're not present with the grief or the hurt or the passion or the aliveness it's unlived life so this practice of seeing the mask the mask stops us from living the life the mask is our way of running away from the life of not having others see what we don't want them to see it's a trying to have them perceive us otherwise, get approval. In those moments that we're enacting the mask, we're not living the life. Does that make sense? That that playing out these personas stops us from living the life in the morning inside and it's the way we're running away from the life. So the practice is to begin to recognize our patterns of running away, the particular masks that we're wearing. The doing self-mask might be a subtle one, but it's really powerful. Every moment you're in that idea of, I'm doing, I should do more, I've got to get this done, I'm on my way somewhere, those are moments of unlived life because there's some deep sense of how it is isn't okay right now. Every moment you're in your controlling mask of trying to get someone else to cooperate or pushing yourself into something, that mask keeps you from living the life that's actually here, from facing that it is out of control, from facing maybe the loneliness or the sadness or the angst that's here. For this woman, this practice of going from he's not interested, he doesn't think I'm special to being interested and paying attention to the unlived life was a very powerful awakening from the mask. She started to ask herself a question I want to share with you which is, who am I if I'm not living from this mask? If I'm not the the victim, if I'm not the rejected one, if I'm not believing that no one's interested, who am I? And this brings us to the second dimension, which is when she asked that question, who am I without this mask of the the one nobody's interested in? If I wasn't wearing that mask, there was this incredible mystery. There was no answer. The who am I was just this mystery of beingness. In that mystery there was awakeness, openness, tenderness, but nothing to land on. This is the timeless presence that the wisdom traditions point to. That when we're not wearing the mask, when we're not identified, we discover the sacred presence. Not only that, when we stop wearing the masks is the only time we can look at another person and see who they are behind their masks. As long as we're wearing a mask, all we can do is react to other masks. Does that connect? But if we start saying, oh, that's my doer mask, or oh, that's my victim mask, or that's my controller mask, and then we sense the who's here, who's peering through, that kind of tender presence, we can look at someone else doing their controlling or their victim thing and see who's peering through that mask. There's a practice I began about ten years ago just as a way of really kind of cutting through where I would say to myself, well, okay, you've got five minutes to live. Okay, so what, what, what really matters? What can you take refuge in? What can you pay attention to? What really works with five minutes to live? And I'd really um, make it real for myself. In other words, I'd say, it's true, you know, who knows when we go, but five minutes, what in these five minutes? And then I'd start paying attention to what is. Because if there's only five minutes, there's this longing to be absolutely awake with what's real, what's true, because that's the only refuge. The only refuge when we're going to die is what's true. 
So I'd start paying attention to sensations and sounds. And then it would get deeper to the what's true is the presence that's here. That's our true refuge. When we know there's not long, we do start putting down our masks. You can see it with people when they're dying. You can see it when you're losing somebody you love. A lot of the masks fall to the wayside. Carlos Castaneda said, you know, when, when death makes even the smallest gesture, all our pettiness falls away. All the masks that seem so important, the proving ourselves mask or the, the getting things our way mask or whatever it is, that's not so important when you have five minutes to live, is it? What matters? What matters when we have five minutes to live is to take refuge in loving presence in what we are. That loving presence, which some call God and some call timeless awareness, is the only space or truth that's big enough for death. When the barn burns down, it's our chance to see what's there when we're not preoccupied by any of the small identifications or masks. Thich Nhat Hanh wrote a poem. Uh, it's like a love song. So when you hear these lines, just hear it as, as if it's addressed to you. Being rock, being gas, being mist, being mind, being the masons traveling among galaxies with the speed of light, you have come here my beloved one. You have manifested yourself as trees, as grass, as butterflies, as single-celled beings and as chrysanthemums. But the eyes with which you have looked at me this morning tell me you have never died. You have never died. So in the Buddhist tradition, it's really understanding the sacredness of these forms that come and go, like really honoring these temporary bodies and minds and the trees and the flowers and every, every phenomena that appears to sense its beauty and its preciousness and its temporariness and to sense the timeless, that awareness that lives through it all. When we begin to recognize in the moments who's behind the mask, what's behind the eyes that are looking right now, who's listening, when we begin to sense that that emptiness of self and that fullness of being, then our activities flow from that presence. And you can see in people that are really awake to the sacred within them that their words and their actions embody that kindness and that wisdom. You can see it. I spoke last week of one of the basic teachings in Zen is that the whole path is about appropriate action. I think that's a great phrase. And what it means is that that we have that quality of presence that our action is absolutely appropriate to whatever's happening. So if someone is struggling and hurt, our action is spontaneous, not because I'm the fixer and going to take care. We just reach out. And if we sense harm to the earth, we do what we can. And if something's beautiful, we feel there's some wonder and we honor it in some way, write a poem, bow. But our appropriate action, it's appropriate because it comes from presence. It comes from remembering the timeless presence that's here. You know, there's um, a sense that this is a very evolved thing to be able to wake up and remember the sacred and then respond appropriately. But it's really, we're living from who we are. And you can see it in children, in old people, in all beings, when there's not a caught-upness with the mask. So I'll read you a closing story. Two young children in a family from Illinois. The eight-year-old daughter became ill and was diagnosed with a life-threatening blood disease. 
a search went out to find a donor of blood compatible with her own. As she weakened, they looked and no donor could be found. Then it was discovered that her six-year-old brother shared her rare blood type. Mother and their minister and doctor sat down with the boy to ask if he would be willing to donate his blood to save the life of his sister. Much to their surprise, he did not answer right away. He wanted some time to think about it. Six-year-olds can be quite thoughtful at times. After a few days, he went to his mother and said, Yes, I'll do it. The following day, the doctor brought both children to his clinic and placed them on cots next to each other. He wanted them to see how one was helping the other. First, he drew a half pint of blood from the young boy's arm. And then he moved it over to his sister's cot and inserted the needle into her so her brother could see the effect. In a few minutes, color began to pour back into her cheeks. Then the boy motioned for the doctor to come over. He wanted to ask questions very quietly. Will I start to die right away, he asked. You see, when he'd been asked to donate his blood to save the life of his sister, his six-year-old mind understood the process literally. That's why he needed a few days to think about it. And then he simply gave what is in the heart of every human being to give when we are truly connected. So what we've been talking about tonight is that it's part of our conditioning, each one of us, to get into a trance and get identified in narrow ways. And there's a number of different kind of a pattern of masks, a kind of personas and selfing that that happens. And that's just every one of us. And the invitation of this path is because we want to be free and live from the wholeness of who we are, is to get familiar with these masks. Okay, the doing self, the controlling self, the defended self, and not add another mask judging that self. I'd say the most painful, sticky source of suffering of all the masks is the mask that judges the other masks. (laughs) And I want to leave you with that because it's, this is such an adventure when with interest and kindness you begin to just notice, okay, here's the conditioning of this body-mind. It's not our faults, it's just the conditioning. And then as I describe with that woman who is in that struggle about relationship, pay attention, just pay attention to how it feels in your body, sense the story you've been telling yourself, like that smoker who just kept saying, oh, I'm a smoker, that's what I am. Who would you be if you didn't believe the story? As soon as you sense the mask and feel the feelings and just bring presence, you start discovering the presence that truly is what you are and there's a dissolving of that identification with the mask. There's a sense of the timeless. And then as things happen in life, we get old, we have losses, things are difficult, It can be like that barn that burns down. We can see the moon. We can remember what we are, that sacred presence that if we had five minutes to live, we know that's what our refuge would be. So let's just take a moment to sit. As mentioned earlier, give yourself that gift of relaxing just this moment, seeing if you can let go a little more. Relaxing and maybe relaxing with the breath some. And in a simple way, just receiving the sounds, listening. Listening to and feeling the moment, completely receptive.
sense that when you're looking out, what it is behind the eyes that's really looking, the awareness that's here. What it is that's listening right now. Sensing that mystery. You've come here, my beloved one. You've manifested yourself as trees, as grass, as butterflies, as single-celled beings, as chrysanthemums. But the eyes with which you looked at me this morning tell me you have never died. Beyond any of the ideas of who we are, the roles, the reactivities, there is the deathless, this one awake space of presence. And if you feel in your body, your heart, you can sense the presence, how it manifests there, and know it to be loving presence. May all beings be blessed to see beyond the mask and realize the love and awareness that is our deepest nature. May we see that in each other. May we serve that in each other. May we live from that loving presence. And may there be peace on this earth. Namaste. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.